Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Melissa Daniels Radicus about her new book, Afro-Realisms and the Romances of Race, Rethinking Blackness in the African American Novel. During our conversation, we discuss how and why she theorized Afro-Realism, issues of authorship and authority in African-American literary studies, important people that helped shape her career, and ultimately what she enjoys most about her career as a scholar. I hope y'all love this convo like I also did. New Books and African-American Studies family. Hey, how you doing today, Melissa? I'm doing well, Adam. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I'm I'm feeling really great because I, I feel, you know, I feel a little different because I haven't interviewed anyone in a couple months. And so I took a little hiatus. So I feel I feel extra good considering you are the the first one. I will we'll call this the 2021-2022 academic uh, school year. All right. Well, I'm I'm so honored to be here. Flattered that you reached out to me. And um, I just feel really blessed to to have this conversation with you. Likewise, likewise, and and so your amazing book, Afro Realisms and the Romance, the Romances of Race, Rethinking Blackness in the African American Novel, was an outstanding book to read. Um, as I told you um, via email, this book helped me to really, um, you know, I've been ensconced within history um, with with um, comps and, and classes for for a bit, and so going back to um, Black literature is just just great. And so, you know, reading your perspectives was really great for me in thinking about writing and, and, and style, uh, along obviously with the information too. So um, I, I knew once I saw it from LSU Press, I was like, I got to press send and send this email right fast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you did. Um, you know, we we do our work independently. And um, sometimes it's just really easy to forget that your ideas are out there in the world and they're circulating and they're touching people. And, um, and I don't expect to, um, to, to always make an impact with my work. So anytime someone reaches out to me and says, hey, I really liked this book or I really um, found your your arguments to be provocative and interesting or germane to like contemporary, um, you know, black cultural studies and cultural politics. I just feel like everything in the universe is all right. You know, you put something out there and then who knows what it sparks. So um, so thank you. Look, and for, for certain, for me, with my black behind, I'm just happy that you are episode number 87 out of these past almost four years. So I'm happy about that. That's awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And so to begin, 
Um, you know, I, I tell folks, man, even within comps, you can learn so much about a person that a book will never fully tell you in terms of like page one through however long, because the acknowledgements tell you so, so much. And even in comps, I, t- I told my friends, hey, man, we we need to read these because there's some there's some inside uh, baseball, as they say, that's uh, within those spaces. And so you mentioned earlier in your acknowledgements that your book stretch your mind and quote in my emotions and change me in ways that elude expression end quote can you elaborate about how your amazing book did this yeah, that's a great question um so for me i'll just be really honest um writing a first book it was really intense um i have to admit that i was intimidated by the scope and the scale of the entire endeavor um, it felt it felt too big, um, and more personally, it really forced me to confront my vulnerability as a black woman in the academy. Um, I knew I had things to say, um, controversial things to say that that flew in the face of how we have traditionally thought about and and talked about blackness, both in terms of a racialized experience. Um, but also as like a modality of literary and cultural production. So as I worked my way through the layers of the argument, I had to really wrestle with that vulnerability and the fear that I think um, attends scholarly writing and that we always grapple with as scholars, no, no matter how long you know we're, we're in this line of work. So as I wrote in um, and rewrote drafts, I, I found my voice, you know, it was through the struggle that I, I found my scholarly voice. Um, and, um, I, I also sensed kind of intuitively that there was a validity to what I had to say. Um, and that was huge for me because I think that all of us, no matter how long we've been in this business, we're insecure sometimes about what we think and how we feel. And it's really scary to put it out there. Um, So the more that I worked on the manuscript, the more confident I became. And I became even more convinced that Blackness and African-American literature really needed to be defined in the widest way possible. And you certainly did that. (laughs) <laughs> Most definitely. And so um, in, in going, building off of that in terms of acknowledgements and community and, and, and the push that we need to really get our work out there, um, I noticed a particular name that in, in a particular institution that I was like, hmm, I know <laughs> this person uh, quite well. She actually might be along on the next episode uh, that I'm on for episode number 88. And so you also mentioned another cool nugget, like I said, in your book acknowledgments, and it's really your connection to the incredible Dr. P. Gabrielle Foreman. Hey, Dr. Foreman, I know you're listening. Um, and so please tell the audience about how Dr. Foreman influenced the, your trajectory as a scholar. Um, and, and I said this because I got the awesome opportunity to work with her for a year at the University of Delaware with the Color Conventions Project. Please tell us about this amazing, amazing scholar, 
and just hum great human being. Fabulous. I'm really I, a matriarch, a matriarch of um, Black women's literary studies and, and an incredible activist and teacher and just a good human being. Um, so yeah, I met Gabrielle when I was a graduate student at Northwestern. And at that time, she was a professor in the English department at Occidental College here in Los Angeles. And um, it was 2008, so I had just advanced to doctoral candidacy, and she hired me, me of all people, little me, to, <laughs> to teach one of her classes and to work as her research assistant while she was visiting at Bowdoin and completing work on her first book, Activist Sentiments, which... Um, for all the listeners out there, if you haven't read it, it's a fabulous, fabulous book about um, 19th century Black women writers and their their activism, their cultural and literary production. Just a great book. So during this time, we had these really fabulous conversations about 19th century African-American literature and my fascination with Mark Twain's novel, Puddinghead Wilson. Um, you know, it's a text that a lot of people don't really know. Um, and it's a shame, you know, everyone knows Huck Finn, but in, in many respects, Puddinghead Wilson is the better book. It is the more mature, um, I think, you know, it has the, the, the sharper political critique about race and slavery and the ongoing legacies of um, those really horrible, horrible events. Um, and not just, you know, Twain's novel, Puddinghead Wilson, but we talked about my fascination with white American literature about race and slavery more generally. We would also talk a lot about racial identity, canon formation, thinking very seriously about how the methodologies with which we approach both are often ideologically or politically driven, um, obscuring the real complexity of racial identification and how we determine communities of writers. Um, I have a good example of, of this. Um, in a special issue of Legacy, the, the scholarly journal, I think it was a 2007 issue, um, Gabrielle, along with several other scholars, black and white, argued against using authorial racial identity as the sole criteria for determining a writer's location in a literary tradition. Now that really is kind of counterintuitive to everything that we just kind of intuitively think about racial identity and canon formation, right? I mean, historically, um, it's been our practice to say if a, if a writer is Black, that's a Black writer. Um, and this writer belongs in this Black literary canon. And if a, if a writer is white, then, you know, the, the their writings are white. And, you know, we've kind of, we've separated the two. And the problem with that is that 19th century literature doesn't really work that way, particularly African-American literature, right? Um, there's a lot of double-voicedness there's a lot of kind of talking black back, talking black too, though, like <laughs> black authors yep. talking back and black to white writers and responding to them. 
um, you know, everyone knows that one of the most important, crucial works of the 19th century um, is Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And Black writers responded to it, you know, William Wells Brown and Clotel. Um, So many writers, Charles Chestnut, right? There are other white figures like Stowe, for example, Tourget, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Who Black writers were taking up and responding to as well. So um, we would talk about this and getting back to that legacy issue, um, I, I became really convinced that they were right, that they were on to something. Um, what really sparked this issue was um, the controversy that followed when Holly Jackson, who was then um, a doctoral student at Brandeis, she had revealed that Emma Dunham Kelly Hawkins, a putative pioneer of African-American women's literature, was not really Black at all, like Henry Louis Gates Jr. had led us to believe, but that she was actually white. And um, because of that, that she should be removed from the African-American literary canon. Now, you can't just go taking people out the canon mm-hmm. once they've been escorted into the canon. And there's been all of this really crucial, fabulous, you know, recovery and reappraisal work. So much of the um, the scholarly activity happening in the 80s, really the 70s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s by people like Gabrielle, people like um, Barbara Christian, who was Gabrielle's mentor, um, women like Nellie McKay, Deborah McDowell. They did that crucial work of... Um, rediscovery, right? Recovery, reappraisal, um, you know, pulling these Black women writers who had fell into obscurity, you know, really um, establishing um, a canon of Black women's writers. So you can imagine the controversy when uh, Holly Jackson says, well, Emma, Emma Dunham Kelly Hawkins, she's not Black. So in this, in the introduction to that legacy issue, Gabrielle and the fabulous um, Shireen Sherard Johnson, they asked these two really crucial questions. One, how much did critical considerations of Kelly Hawkins's work rely on her racial identity or affinity? And two, how much more interesting is her work when read through the matrix of Black feminist discourse? following the logic that black and white writers share an intertextual and an interracial tradition, one not solely defined by an overtly abolitionist or racialized context, right? So um, so ultimately, these are the kind of questions that have really always driven me as a scholar. Afro-realisms is my attempt to grapple with these questions. Um, specifically in the context of African-American literature produced at the Nader. Um, And for any listeners out there who don't know what the Nader is, that's the period after Reconstruction, all the way up to the beginning of what we call the New Negro Renaissance or the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s. This is, as so many Black scholars before me have observed, including Henry Louis Gates, Um, um, Barbara McCaskill, 
um, uh, this is one of the most under theorized and kind of neglected periods in African American studies. Um, so, in some ways, my new book project, which is called Swirl, um, takes up these concerns in Black women's writings about race and interracial desire after the civil rights era. So the through line for me that connects both projects is this commitment that I have to creating um, more sophisticated models for thinking about Blackness and what counts as African-American literature. And I really truly have to credit Gabrielle for igniting that, that flame in me. And look, I'm telling you that that's that's incredible, and, and to be able to go back in your trajectory back to oh seven oh eight, and and also thinking about the time, like obviously we know what was happening in terms of of race and and, and racialization and and possibility in in the United States uh, in the Obama era. Um, at the very beginning oh. of it, in, in a way, um, and so to 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 back up a little bit to discuss. Right. We, we, we I love this. You know, you said that you, you know, listen to some of the uh, other episodes. And so, you know, the question that's coming up next process. <laughs> um, and as you and many of uh, the other listeners can attest, I love just learning about how some of my favorite writers think and, and, and even, uh, oftentimes change their their writing processes. Um, so with that in mind, can you describe the writing process you undertook for this project? Um, and also, uh, were there any uh, writing groups that, that you were involved in, maybe that you might want to shout out? Thank you. Um, this is one of my favorite questions, by the way, um, because I am so into writing. Um, and I study writing. Um, and I... I study how my favorite writers approach their writing. Um, and so my approach to writing Afro-realisms, I just want to say at the outset, was very unconventional. And I would never advise you or anybody else to do what I did. It worked for me, thank God. Um, because, you know, I, I believe um, that, you know, you can't mess up God's plan. And what is what is meant for you is meant for you. You know what I mean? Um, you know, many assistant professors, they start transforming their dissertations into into book manuscripts as soon as they accept their first tenure track job offer. I mean, before they e before the ink even dries on the contract, people are already mm -hmm. doing that work of revising the dissertation because, you know, dissertations are not books. You know, they're two completely different things. And a lot of us don't know that, you know, I was not very sophisticated coming out of Northwestern. Um, I'm a first generation college graduate. I'm the first person in my family to get a Ph.D., I come from um, a black working class background. I was raised by a single mother on food stamps and section eight, you know? So um, there's just a lot about academia that I didn't know anything about. And even though I did really well in graduate school, um, you know, my whole way of dealing with the insecurity I had about my background was to just always appear very stoic, you know, and I know what I'm doing and, you know, just that kind of 
um, that that toughness that I think black women just kind of inherently have, you know, and it served me well. It got me through the program, but there were things that I just didn't know, you know, and um, I think because of that, it took me it took me years to really conceive of Afro realisms as a book. It started as a dissertation, but sometimes ideas need time to cook. You know, I kind of like to use the metaphor of baking. You put all your ingredients in and then you put it in the oven and you walk away. And that's what happened. Um, I needed time for the ideas to cook. I needed time to cook. I needed time to you know, um, learn how to be an assistant professor. The first few years on the tenure track, you're just learning how to be a professor. You're learning how to show up to department meetings. You're learning how to mentor students. You're learning how to teach um, your own classes. And so that doesn't always leave a lot of time for revising a dissertation or learning how to write a book. So it took me, it took me years. Um, and by the time I really really started um, figuring out how to how to structure this manuscript as a book. I was already in my second tenure track job um, here at USC. Um, so I wrote this book in kind of the worst possible scenario anyone could write a book. I, I wrote this book with a ticking tenure time clock in the background. I mean, the pressure was for real. I mean, I, I love my department. I love my colleagues. They're the best. They have always been very good to me. I recently got tenure, so it worked out. Ooh, praise um, God. Praise God, okay? Because I, I, didn't, I didn't think that I would, you know? Um, but the pressure. I wrote this book with tremendous pressure. Now, some of us, I think, do well with pressure. <laughs> and I think because of my background and the way I grew up, par for the course, you know, my whole life I have been, you know, I got to make it, you know, um, I got, I got to, I got to figure it out. I got to do it. I got to get it done. So that was the ethos and um, the ethos in which I wrote the book. And that was my attitude. Um, for me, I felt like my career was on the line. And so I, I really did see this as like a life or death situation. And um, I, I wrote I wrote this book like Eminem wrapped in the final scene of Eight Mile. <laughs> yep, yep. And 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 look, you made it work. You made it work. Yeah. And so um, you know, it, it's it's really it's really great to hear about your um, about your trajectory and your and your path to the book, and also. You know the 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 fact that you didn't. I guess you could say that uh, you went the unconventional route of you know. I guess in terms of like the timeline uh, of your of your revision process. And so um, I, I'm you know fascinated to hear more actually about you know as this being you know one of those uh, organic questions here. Can you speak more about you? You said that you enjoy the study of writing, right? Yeah. How do how do you how does that work in terms of how that occurs in your classroom? How that occurs, right? How have you gotten better? I guess actually this is a better question. How have you gotten better as a writer 
since you graduated from Northwestern and are now at USC? And the reason why I ask this question, um, as as you gather your thoughts, I'm sure, um, is, is because we think about like, you know, I'm, I'm a big sports guy. So I always think about, okay, if you're LeBron James and you've been at the top for so long, how do you continuously get better if you are considered the best for now, for, for, you know, well over a decade. And so I think about that with, with someone like yourself, where you got the book, you got your, you got tenure, you're, you're at an amazing institution, USC, go Trojans. And it's like, how do you get better. And so going to pass that yeah. over to you to, to give the listeners an answer to that one. These are fabulous questions. Um, I, I love, I love the sports metaphor. I'm a sports person too. Um, absolutely. And, um, and my, my approach towards writing um, is not just scholarly. Like a lot of it is very, it's very personal. Um, and, um, it's really about authority and voice. And I think that's why I'm so attached to becoming a better writer because I, um, I have to, like, I, I, I feel that, uh, I have to have a voice and the voice needs to be an authentic one. And there needs to be space in our institutions for voices like mine, you know, because we don't always hear voices like that. This also shows up in my teaching too, though. Um, you know, I think writing is the kind of thing that writers love, but writers also hate it because it's so hard. Writing is hard, you know, and um, it's such an individualistic practice. And, you know, like yoga, it's a journey. It's an ongoing practice. You know, people who are good at yoga, they spend years you know, doing the same moves, right? The, the, the same sun salutations, but it's always about how can I perfect this, right? And so um, I, I do that by just looking at sentences. I, I get scholarly books out of my library and I look at how my favorite scholars, how they craft sentences. Um, you know, I... I'm, I'm interested in the mechanics and the grammar of the writing. I'm interested in the structure, the structuring of ideas. I'm a real systems and conceptual person. I think in terms of models, um, I'm, I'm very structured, highly, highly organized. It's just, it's the way that I manage my anxiety and my obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> um, I'm a highly, I, I make a list. I'm just a highly organized person. So for me, I look at a book and I'm looking at the book as a system, you know, and I'm looking at how, how is this book structured? How's the argument organized? What is the flow from, um, you know, one idea to the next? And I write like that, you know, I, that's the kind of writer that I am. I'm a very, um, disciplined, structured writer. I'm a very clear writer. Um, and, you know, I sometimes feel like, you know, we are often subconsciously taught in the academy that your writing, if your writing's not laced with jargon, if you're not using the latest buzzwords from critical theory that you're a bad writer or you're, um, you're not as smart. 
as someone who might write in a more theoretically inclined kind of way. And I, I just don't agree with that. I, I, I fundamentally don't agree with that. Good writing is clear. Good writing is accessible. Good writing um, touches other people. And it brings them into conversations so that the ideas can circulate and so that we can build on each other's work. So, um, so that's my, my, my process of getting better. You know, it's about studying other people who I admire and looking at their style and then kind of thinking like, okay, I want to do what that person did because I admire them and I look up to them, but I want to put my own, um, my own flair, my own, my own style on it. Kind of like a Kobe Bryant looking at Jordan, right. And saying like, you're the best, you know, and I admire you and I want to be like you, but I also want to be Kobe Bryant, you know? So how can I take this thing and how can I, you know, put me in it? And, and then it's just the, you know, the practice, it's daily practice. Kobe Bryant, before he died, was like one of the hardest working basketball players in the NBA. You know, he was known for his work ethic. I mean, he was always hustling. He was always practicing. And, um, and that's, that's something that I do too, you know? Um, and and in, in terms of my teaching, I, I think it's important to give not just undergraduate students, but I would say graduate students too. Give them the space to talk honestly about writing because writing well is an expectation in graduate programs, but I don't always feel like there's a lot of training on writing. Say that. You know? Say that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're expected to be this fabulous professional writer, but there's there's no infrastructure in place to help you become a better writer. And if you're struggling with writing, it's oftentimes the advice is we'll go to the writing center, you know, which is offensive really. Um, and, and, you know, um, oftentimes racist because it's usually black graduate students who are told go to the writing center. You know um, I've, I've heard all of that coded language before, you know, um, we need to give our students the space to talk about the fears that they have about writing. We need to give them space to cultivate their own voices, to use their own language, to articulate their ideas and how they feel about their, their work. And, um, it's it's 2021. We need to stop telling people that they need to sound intelligent or you need to sound this way. No, you don't. You need to do you. You know, you need to do you. Um, because when you I really believe when you do you, people see that they respect it and it's real. Even if people don't agree with your ideas, they can respect that you are you. Um, and, um, being, uh, being a good writer, I think means being someone who's confident about saying what they have to say in, in authentic, um, natural, organic way. Outstanding. Outstanding. And, and like that, that was just a, that was just a lot. 
in, in all the best lot. ways and all the best ways. And, and I think that you, you touched on um, something that makes me think that I want to have you on for a separate episode to actually talk about writing just more, uh, more in depth and, and also a bit more broadly than we can on this because you know you want to focus on Afro rhythms and but you know what I'm saying, yeah. uh, but I also <laughs> think that you opened up um, a space for me to bring you on for uh, an episode hopefully later this um, this semester because you you spoke true facts about the fact that like I've been in three different programs masters first uh, PhD um, I my first year was at Delaware and I transferred to to Rutgers. And, you know, I, I don't remember there ever being really much of a formal, like, teaching of how to write. And, you know, there there's something to be said about graduate training. Um, yeah. and, and I'm coming from a history program. So, you know, it, it is a different space than, than English or, or comp lit, but still, yet and still, you know, Thankfully, there there was a writing um, class that, that Rutgers did offer, um, which thankfully I did take during the first half of the spring 2020 semester before COVID. So I'm actually really grateful that that was even a class as opposed to the same writing center, but an, an actual form, formal class, which is much different than going to a 30 minute session or an hour session with the writing center. Um, And so, so, but I also know that that's not everywhere. Um, And and also when a, when, uh, when, when you only have five years of funding and they really want you to get out to do, you know, your research and to do your comp stuff so you can get on out. That's another space too. Um, And, and so suffice it, suffice it to say, writing is something that I feel so oftentimes we're just pushed as graduate students to go get better at, but without actually having the tools of, do you outline? Do you, how do you revise? Like I remember my, um, my professor, uh, Dr. Donna Merch, who actually gave us in our seminar, her own writing checklist. When I tell you that thing is so amazing. And it made me really think, after my first semester at Rutgers, that was pretty tough. I was like, I had to say to myself, Adam, do you even know how to revise your own work? Because <laughs> I've gotten so used to just, you know, here you go, friend. Please, you know, let me tell me about myself, right? Yeah. To the point where you still need that to be able to give it off, but you also need to be able to know how to actually revise your own stuff. So that it's more polished so that, you know, those small, you know, those smaller errors that become a larger thing in a 20 to 30 page thing that they can more focus on content as opposed to grammar or craft and all these things, too. So um, and along with the way to say, I can't wait to have this conversation. I can't either, because like that was there's a lot I want to say about that. But, yeah, um, you were so on the mark when you say that um, there's no space in graduate training as it exists today to work on your writing in a serious way. Um, And we've got to do something about that. You know, we really do. 
Um, we have methodologies courses. Almost every PhD program I can think of, there's uh, an intro to graduate studies class. Mm-hmm. I can tell you what mine looked like. You know, it was all theory. Mm-hmm. And it was like mostly white critical theorists, the Frankfurt School, you know, Walter mm-hmm. Benjamin, and, you know, these things, Adorno. And that's fine. But we also need to have courses specifically about writing and about um, what it means to be uh, a professional scholar um, and, and how can scholars of color, you know, how can BIPOC um, uh, people uh, cultivate voices, critical, creative, that are authentic, and um, and that and and so that they don't feel like they have to give up who they are, you know, to write in a way that the graduate program um, recognizes and celebrates. So yeah, we we got to we got to have that conversation. And it's gonna be a great one. It's gonna be a great one. And so, um, you know, going back to audience and, and such too uh, for this next next question. Since we at New Books of African American Studies have a diverse array of listeners from within and outside of academia, uh, I want to ensure everyone knows what the major keywords are within our discussion, too. Um, so Afro-realism is one of them, obviously. Um, so how did you come across this term and how does it apply to the Black writers of your study? That's a great question. Um so Afro-realisms is, is my term. Um, I actually coined this term. Um, and, and it's my term for the, the merger of mimetic or realistic and anti-mimetic. This would be more literary genres. So like when I say anti-mimetic, I'm talking like sentimentalism or, you know, um, uh, romance as a genre you know, not Harlequin romance, but more like historical romance, like, um, you know, uh, James Fenimore Cooper, um, Sir Walter Scott, that, that kind of historical romance, you know, um, a genre that Toni Morrison in her 1992 book, Playing in the Dark, um, rightfully acknowledged as being like the default genre of American, early American writing. Um, and a genre that was just inherently racist too, you know, um, because so much of it was about, you know, white men. It was about settler colonialism, really. It was about white men, you know, um, civilizing um, uh, indigenous people, um, you know, uh, colonizing a space kind of um you know, it was a genre that just kind of allowed them to create a myth or a narrative about America that was um, that was steeped in imperialism, really. So Afro-realism, getting back to that term, that's my term for the merger of realistic and more literary um, conventions and narrative strategies. Uh, you know, many people have said that, yeah, you see that, in writing at this time, I, I also think that to a larger extent, it's just characteristic of African-American writing in general. I mean, you look at a writer like Toni Morrison and you see the realistic and the kind of non-realistic elements in, in her work. 
Um, so the term for me is a way to kind of get a handle on um, how Black writers are using um, the, the, the merger of the realistic and the non-realistic to, um, to depict Black experience. So my, my, my idea here with Afro-realisms is that this merger gave Black writers the power to depict their dystopian realities at the time, right? Um, and their utopian hopes for a better future in America. So in this way, Black writers focus their efforts on conveying a sense of the nightmarish and wildly unbelievable realities of de facto and de jure racism and looking ahead to a tomorrow, though, um, in which Black identity could be theorized and experienced beyond the narrow taxonomies of racial difference that organized American life during the nadir. So it's this kind of, you know, this way to depict the horrors of Jim Crow, right? Or um, the long hangover of slavery. But, you know, it was also speculative, right? It was a way of kind of looking forward to a, a future where Blacks would be more incorporated into the fabric of the, the nation, right? Um so it's a neologism, you know, it's a term that I, I, I created. Um, it's my attempt to illustrate also as a scholar, like how the literary can engender a type of critical theory of genre aesthetics and representation, particularly within the context of African-American literary studies. Um, I wanted to challenge this idea that the literary is somehow antithetical to theory and underscore how questions of form, genre, interpretation, and methodology are intrinsically theoretical. Um, in this way, the term operates similarly to Tavia Nyong'o's notion of Afrofabulations, right? That, that really great book. It's incredible, incredible. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really, first of all, I'm excited for people to go buy the book, so, you know, People, people going to buy the book. We know that. Shout out to LSU Press. And so... Please buy the book. <laughs> hey, for, for sure, for sure. Um, and, and so for me, I, I think that it's, um, it's important because people have to understand, I think, that when we talk about different terms and different keywords, you know, it's, it's good to understand also the fact that you're the one who created this term. So I was thinking like, have I, because when I saw the book originally, I was like, have I seen, have I read that term before? I was like, you know, this was, and so, so I'm, so I'm glad uh, that you were able to tell the listeners about the, the origin story, a, a bit of it. Um, and so turning to some challenges as well um, with, with the book, because Lord knows with any kind of book like this, you see the pages, but you don't know everything that went into, <laughs> you know, that the, the, the production of the book. So, uh, for you as the author, what was the biggest challenge you faced constructing Afro-realisms and the romances of race? Yeah, so it's another great question. Um, I would say my ignorance about the academic publishing process. Um, you know, I, I really was in, in some ways learning a foreign language about scholarly publishing while also trying to write a book. Um and so because of this, um, because I was doing double duty, I felt really overwhelmed, 
when I was writing this book. Um, there's just a lot that I didn't know. You know, one of the things I didn't know is how long it takes to publish a book. You know, you think that you just finish the manuscript and you send it in for peer review and then it goes out to the external reviewers and then you think you're going to have a book in a year and it really doesn't work like that. There's so many unknowns and, and so many unexpected things that happen. Um, you know, you, you don't know how long it's going to take a peer reviewer to read the manuscript, draft a reader's report. Um, I guess on some level, I thought that I just finished the manuscript, sent it in, and, you know, there'd be a book a year later. It is so much more complicated than that. You know, you, you have to navigate the peer review process. Then you have to take a very detailed reader's report and, you know, once you kind of um, go through the emotional drama, I know I did of, you know, here are all these issues with the book. And I, you know, it's like, oh, you, you can have the emotional breakdown, but then you've got to get past that and get back to work and just, OK, how can I address the reader's concerns with the manuscript? Um, you know, so so that, too, was a challenge. Um, but but ultimately, um, my ignorance was, which was a real challenge. I think really became my biggest blessing in the end because um, the great thing about ignorance is when you have the desire to learn, you know, you can learn, and you're not ignorant anymore. But um, I really did learn a lot. I learned so much from my acquisitions editor, who he was great. Um, James Long, LSU Press. Thank you. Thank you, James. He was fabulous. Um, I had a great copy editor. Oh, I learned so much about writing from my copy editor who took my prose and she cleaned that stuff up. I, I mean, there, she just made the writing more forceful, right? Um, she made it more efficient. She gave it more fluidity. I learned so much from the copy editor. My indexer was great. Um, the sales and marketing team at LSU, they were fabulous. They allowed me to pick the Aaron Douglas image that is on the cover. Um, you know, so scholarly publishing is a business, you know, and it's a complex business and it's changing too because of the, the, um, the the shrinking of the academic publishing market, um, especially for university presses. You know, we live in an age where university presses are literally disappearing um, weekly um, because of budget cuts um, and because institutions are no longer willing to fully fund their university presses. So um, I learned a lot. I, I think anytime you write a book, you know, the book, there, there's a certain temporality to the book. You know, the book really um, is going to be affected by the, the whatever's happening with scholarly publishing at that time. You know, um, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's situational, you know, mm -hmm, your mm -hmm. book your book exists in a marketplace. Whatever trends, whatever circumstances there are in the academic um, uh, market at that time, it will affect your book. 
So um, that's that's uh, an entirely different kind of challenge, but but it is a challenge for sure. And yeah, no, I'm, and I'm glad that you were able to shout out your uh, magnificent team at LSU Press too, because you know you just showed all the different hands that were in the 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 pot, shall we say, you know, stirring up this amazing book with this great cover um, as well. And so it's it's good to be able to shout out the, the different people um, that's, that's involved that once again, not everyone may also know. And to also highlight some of the, um, difficulties at this point. Um, especially when many of the more major presses are also at public institutions, right? For instance, like LSU or UNC or, uh, university press of Kentucky and or Florida. Um, and so, um, you know, you, you push us in another way. So, so, so let me go to another push that you provided um, in, in the text. So quite provocatively, um, you call for a new model for thinking about race and its inclusion in African-American literary studies. What are you mm-hmm. exactly calling for here? And how do the diverse set of writers and Afro-realisms and the romances of race help you advance your particular argument? Thank you. Thank you. Um, so um, if I might tweak your language a little bit, I would say that what I'm what I'm calling for in the book is a new model for thinking about race, um, authorship, uh, racial representation and canon formation in American and African-American literary studies. So broadly speaking, I wanted to provide an alternative to the predominant author based system of racial and little literary classification. So that is the idea that if a writer is Black, then they must solely carry the burden of racial representation all on their own, shouldering the heavy responsibility of representing race, not only as an identitarian construct, but but also as a conceptual category in fiction. Um, What I mean here is that like the approach towards covering race you know, in week seven of the syllabus has often been, let's read Toni Morrison or let's read James Walden Johnson. And so Mm -hmm. not only are, not only does that approach put this huge responsibility on the black writer to tell the truth about the black experience, but now it's like black authors are literally stand-ins for the concept of race as a conceptual category in literary studies. Um, the problem with this is that white writers get a pass from having to grapple with race at all or the history of racial oppression, something that I believe um, is our collective inheritance as Americans and should be a shared, albeit uneven responsibility. Um, in some respects, I was motivated by Mary Helen Washington's 1997 presidential address to the American Studies Association. In which, in which she asked the question, what would American studies look like if African-American studies were at its center? So um, like Washington, I felt like it was really important to upset this center periphery model in which African-American literature exists on the circumference of American literary studies. And, and, you know, that was a long time ago, 1997, but in some ways, this model still persists today um, in spite of the institutionalization of the field. Um, so I wanted to trouble all of this 
within the context of realism as a genre. Um, and, and it had to be realism because realism is kind of the modality in which all black creative acts um, take place. Because whenever a black artist creates anything, the expectation is tell us what it's like to be black. Show us what it's like to be black. Right. I mean, that is that is always the um, the environment or the creative situation in which black writers produce or black artists create art. Um, so for me, the question was, well, why can't African-American literature be at the center of realism? You know, um, there's this irony in the fact that, you know, black writers have always been expected to tell the truth about being black or about, you know, racial discrimination. But when we look at realism as like a literary genre, so many of the studies, so many of the literary histories, they only focus on white writers. They only focus on white realists. It's Mark Twain, Henry James, you know, um, Edith Wharton. You know, it's always the kind of same group of white writers. Um, and so what I was trying to do here was to say, hey, realism is not just this white literary genre. Black, black artists were producing realism going all the way back to the slave narrative. You know, um, now other scholars have made this point, Madhu Dupe, you know, Jean Andrew Jarrett, um, Andrea Williams, got to give them shout outs because they're um, huge, um, huge influences on my own work. Um, so so I, I wanted to kind of enter into discussion with them and um, and, and say, you know, it's time not just for African-American um, uh, literature to be at the center of American studies, but it's also time for Black writers to be at the center of discussions about literary realism. Um, and, and so this was, for me, a way to prioritize Black writers, racial issues, um, so, something that's just rarely done in so many of the canonical literary histories. Um, but also, you know, I wanted to talk about the unique narrative strategies that Black writers employed. So, you know, as they, here they were really trying to move Black representation away from the realm of racial caricature and stereotype toward greater reality. Um, and it's ironic because, you know, they realized that in order to really do that, they would have to actually use less realism and more romantic and sentimental approaches. Because for so long, you know, um, white people were reading things like Uncle Tom's Cabin and thinking that that was, that was how Black people really were. That's how Black people really were. So there was only the racist, romantic, sentimental, you know, uh, George Fredrickson used the term um, romantic racialism. Right. Which, you know, is kind of like the 19th century equivalent of, you know, what Tim Wise and others have called, um, you know, microaggressions. You know, it's it's not overtly malignant, but it still does harm. It's it's still um, toxic. 
right? So because that because there was only this um, you know, romantic racism um that was employed to to depict um, you know, black people, black writers, they would have to kind of move towards something more imaginative, um, something more speculative to kind of shift the terms of representation, to to move away from caricature and stereotype towards, okay, this is this is how we really are, you know? Um, so I just I, I feel like that's really interesting. But also I want to add here that, you know, because of the racism and and in spite of the racism of the literary marketplace, they had really crucial cross-racial dialogues with white writers um, like William Dean Howells and Mark Twain and Stowe even. Um, and these conversations were always about race and the vicious legacies of slavery and um, what it would really take to create a more equitable American society. When we look at novels like Frances Harper's Iola LeRoy, you know, um, anything really by Charles Chestnut, Pauline Hopkins's speculative fictions, um, we see what they have in common with um, texts like Twain's Puddinghead Wilson or William Dean Howells's miscegenation novel in Imperative Duty is this sense that any kind of racial progress in America would require a real reckoning with the slave past and with the legacies of antebellum literary culture. It would require that writers, readers, and citizens address the legal and moral wrongs of slavery and cultivate a literary tradition that would first and foremost advance and enfranchise African-Americans, and secondly, teach white people the right way to feel about ongoing racial inequality. The logic being that this could result in much needed emotional and political reform. Now that was rich, y'all. That, that was very rich. And so I, I, I like this because what you're doing is helping us to better think about, like you said, authorship and, and also um, also going back to even uh, the answer that you provided before about editorials, right? Or well, not editorials as in, in the terms of newspapers, but people who are helping to edit. Who's who is Uncle uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin? You know, loosely based off of like you know actual people's. And so, just thinking about how the involvement of the process of writing is also involved in what you're saying, because how something gets produced is a part of the canon as well, right? Absolutely. Because. That's why you know Toni Morrison and the um the documentary that came out a couple years ago about her, um which was great that you know obviously speaks about her own space as an editor I believe at Random House and thinking about yeah her placement allowed for the production of Angela Davis and so many other people and so for me thinking about you know it, more more so this is building on what you're saying um to really talk about how does how do white writers and also editors and the people in, involved in the process, how and why are they not more involved in our understanding of, of um, African-American uh, literary studies more broadly, especially when the weight of race and race making is so inherently built on black writers 
um, and, and largely African American uh, uh, writers, to even be more precise. And so, and so I'm, I'm, you know, marking this down in my head when um, I got to go back to uh, uh, Doctor Foreman's first book too to go read, which I got to yeah. open back up. Um, and so, another question for you: early in your text, you challenge your reader to. Um, obviously, like you said, reconsider the relationship to to race and realism, and in it you demand we see race in a new way. Yeah, tell us a bit about why you think through your text your readers should see race in a new way through this particular literary canon, right? I love this question too. This is this is one of my favorites <laughs> as well. Uh, yeah, so I think that historically speaking, the relationship between race and realism it's just been very marginalizing for black writers. Um, you know, like I said earlier, when you, when you go all the way back to the slave narrative, you know, African-American writing has been primarily valued for its ability to tell the, the truth about the black experience as if that were a singular quantifiable or objective reality, you know? And um, the problem with this is that for me, at least, it, it proceeds from a very faulty premise um, in which race is something that only black people possess um, as opposed to a structural phenomenon that all people, including white people, inhabit and negotiate, right? Like it's too, it's too identitarian as if like the truth proceeds from you know your your essence or your um your person um and you know there are so many different truths plural about the black experience you know or about um experiences of racialization um but i think it's important that we i'm not saying throw away the idea of race as um you know, something that individuals grapple with. But I'm saying we need to also consider that race is structural, right? It is, it is a constructed um, reality. And it's something that we all, um, we all are trapped in it, you know? Um, and so I, I, I want us to, to move beyond just thinking about race in terms of, identity, but looking at race as a, as a systemic problem, right? Um, so part of what I'm doing here is I'm trying to kind of challenge this narrow identitarian definition of race, right? Um, because as I see it, it creates this very problematic pedagogical and methodological situation in which race is simultaneously functioning as a conceptual category in literary studies, like I said earlier, right? Um, one that Black writers best represent, even if their writings are not explicitly about race or racial oppression, right? Um, while race has been and remains an important topic in African-American literature, it's not the only one. And, and neither should it be the primary lens through which we view Black experience. Um, we need to engage with Black literature beyond race 
so as to see and comprehend the full range and diversity of Black being and Black life. When we look at the writers and texts that I take up in Afro-realisms, what we see is that Black and white writers participated in an interracial dialogue about race and racial representation, specifically Black identity and representation in fiction. For me, this kind of demands that we think about authorship, genre, the Black literary canon, and the literary marketplace in more complex ways. You know, um, race is not something that only Black people have. Black writing shouldn't have this this burden um, of telling the truth about the Black experience Um, But if it wants to, that's fine and that's great. Um, But we need to also consider that we all exist in a racialized environment, that race is also systemic, it's structural. White people are part of that. They are operating in that and they are perpetuating it too. Um, But if we are ever really truly to see Black people as being fully human, then we, um, we need to have an approach in literary studies. We need to, we need to value Black literature um, beyond telling us the truth about race. We need to have a robust, diverse um, canon of Black writings so that we have a robust, dynamic definition of what it means to be Black. And so the a question to 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 ask you here, um, uh, going off script for one moment, is and it comes from a conversation that I had recently. I think even as recent yesterday, um, with a friend where we're talking about how, especially when you see job ads, and there there, I think there should be a, a bigger think piece. Uh, hopefully, someone listening will do it on just how job ads are constructed based upon the time and the reasons why they're out, i.e. since last summer. Um, But, you know, once again, that's a whole nother discussion. But it brings up the question of when I talk about what I write about in terms of enslaved women and and slavery and um, in wartime resistance in the 18th and early 19th century, I can talk about race when we talk about the question of like, the class that I may or may not teach in terms of like the survey, the African-American history survey. But when we talk about who are historians and thinkers and writers about race, not, you know, in some, um, not, not in the way that a lot of uh, books and booksellers, you know, talk about race, but we're talking about the actual creation of what we now know as race. That ain't me. Yeah. Right. And so it makes me just think as well about is race. And it makes me also think about some things James Baldwin said. Is race as a concept an enemy and or mm. is it something? And, and I say this because when I identify myself, I think about it first, you know, in part of, uh, uh, you know, a religious aspect and also yeah. an identity of a race. Yeah. That when a lot of times when we talk about the concept, right, not about how race works now, but it's historical mm-hmm. underpinnings. 
that is seen as something that we should demonize. Mm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to a question of is race, whether the historic um, underpinning and or how we presently understand it today, do we, do you see it at all as kind of like an enemy position in a way? That's a great question. Maybe enemy might not be the right identifying word, but I think you you can kind of see where. um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, And here's where I think historians are really helpful. Like I'm even thinking about Ziomara Santa Maria. She's got this essay about like historical um, specificity. It's called like, are we there yet? Mm. (laughs) It's a great piece. It's a great piece. But um, race is not the enemy. You know, to talk about race is not to be a racist. You know what I mean? But I think in our culture, we we think that, you know, I mean, you turn to Fox News and that's what they're telling you. You know, the pundits on Fox News are saying, well, if you invoke race as a historical force in American life, that's to be racist. Well, that's BS. You know, that's not that's not true. Race is a fundamental organic, when I say organic, like like sunlight and dirt, like soil, race and racism are endemic to American life. You know, um, it just is. It's I think it's in the water, it's, it's in the soil. I mean, there's just, there's no way around that. Um, so, you know, Race is not the enemy. I think race is a very important um, force in American life. One has one that has been historically um, very, um, very necessary, um, very much a center of um, how we define um, America, you know, how we define American identity, citizenship, who gets to be a citizen right? Um, Who gets to be a human? You know what I mean? Like these are all racialized categories. So, um, so for me, talking about race, you know, I think you also asked the question, like, is that a burden? Um, It can be. It can also, getting back to Baldwin, you know, um, it, it can be. I think when we look at post-World War II Black writing and we see these white life novels, the reason why Black writers were writing white life not novels, you know, like The Foxes of Hera, I'm thinking of like Frank Yerby's book, these Gene Andrew Jarrett has called them the anomalous texts, right? The texts that um, are not overtly marked by any racial signifiers. We don't know, you know, we don't know if these characters are Black or not. Black writers after World War II wrote the white life novel because they were trying to get out of the pigeonhole of Black writer. You know what I mean? Um, now, I, I think that this is a really complex discussion here and that it's important to kind of um, look at it from every different angle. Um, there is a rich tradition of Black writers writing about race. And that is fabulous. And that is a big part of the Black literary tradition. But there are, and it, a lot of it has to do with the racism of the literary marketplace. There's a way in which um, writing about race puts you in this niche 
where that is the only way your work gets valued. You know what I mean? And and sometimes the consequences of that pigeonholing, it's extreme. It's dire. You know, it means that if you're a Black writer, we see this even today. If you are a Black writer today um, and you write, a, um, you, you write a book that is not this week's latest flavor, that can have negative consequences for your career. If you are a Black writer and you want to achieve any kind of commercial or critical acclaim, you kind of have to write about race or slavery or oppression. If you are a Black writer and you are writing kind of outside of the traditional ways that we have defined and understood Black writing in America, your writing kind of falls into obscurity. People don't really know who you are. You know, like Andrea Lee, who is a, a writer I'm working on right now. So many people do not know who Andrea Lee is. You know, they know Sarah Phillips. They know that that work. But because she writes about Black women abroad in Europe and Italy and interracial, a lot of people don't know her. Um, I'm thinking of um, Ada Levy Hudson's great book, How to Read African-American Literature. And she talks about how there's this, there's this kind of hidden archive in African-American literature. Jean Andrew Jarrett would say all of the anomalous texts, the texts that don't fit the formula, the texts that aren't about racial oppression, um, protesting, you know, <laughs> um, racial solidarity. It's like, we don't really have the infrastructure or the vocabulary to talk about these books. We don't know how to value them. We don't know where to place them. I think that telling Black artists that they always have to write about race is very limiting. Um, I think that at the same time, though, it is a necessary, rich um, um, uh, kind of work to do. Um, but I also think that if we are to have a very expansive, full understanding of what it means to be Black, what it has historically meant to be Black and what it means to be Black today, then we need, so, we, we need, we need all of it. We need as many different kinds of writing by Black people um, that we can have. You know, we need we need books like Trey, Trey Ellis wrote this novel in the 80s called Platitudes. It's about black nerds. It's about black people, at, at, you know, at prep schools. It's not about black people in the hood, you know, running from the police. I'll read I'll read a good book about black people in the hood running from the police. But I also want to read about black people at Andover because we need that, too. We need to be seen um, as a diverse, complex, multifaceted community. And I don't believe that we are. You know, we're, we're seeing um, white people tend to see us as a monolithic group, and that harms us. You know, um, we know we're not monolithic, but I think more and more of us Black literary scholars, Black historians, and we've been doing this work for years in Black studies, though. We are. I mean, that's for me, that's what new Black studies means. It means that we're looking at the experiences of our queer brothers and sisters. You know, we're looking at the experience of, um, of Black people who, you know, we don't see every day and whose stories we don't hear about. 
And so, um, and so, you know, part of what I'm trying to call for here is that we, um, we see Black experience and Black writing in um, a more elastic way. And that's great because it also brings to the fore a lot of things that going back to, um, you know, either you want to talk about in the Obama era, you know, you know, and, and it's kind of like the signifiers of the times, right? You know, you, you're, I'm sure you remember Torres, uh, uh, pieces that are during the Obama era that caused oh, yeah. so just, just a little bit of a stir, um, <laughs> or, you know, you want to talk about, um, you know, uh, all the pieces now since 2016 and or 2020, um, talking about, you know, politics in the Trump era and all these different things. And, and now in a post uh, uh, summer of 2020, uh, speaking about the the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor, how to 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 call it what it is the in in large ways sometimes the commodification of 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 black death where it's often about yeah. not only about people want to but also the, this kind of relationship and I heard um, Imani Perry and uh, Kese Lehman speak about this in one of their talks from the Free Library of Philadelphia um, speak about all that and we still got to pay bills we got to help extended family where the money that we generate from these sales are not just ours alone, they're mom, grandma, you know, the extent, and, and maybe not for everybody, because, you know, like you said before, not everyone has um, a financial situation like that, but many do. Um, yeah. And so just thinking about um, the effect, not only of death, but also the experience of how um, publishing companies who are are definitely, you know, creating the clouds in this in this situation that we're uh, walking under. Their influence on this conversation too, right? Which yeah. goes back to what I said before about um, the editorial process and who's who is publishing Frederick Douglass's yeah. narratives, right, from the 1840s to the point where he can do things differently in the different iterations of his own writing. Um, yeah. And so I think that, you know, your answers here are really getting towards it. And that was also why I'm glad I asked, because uh, that was the, the, the question about um, uh, uh, authorship and, and just thinking about how, how race works. And, yeah. you know, because ultimately, look, I order my life in terms of like, you know, uh, being a black person and, and you know, yeah. certain, you know, inside and outside jokes. Um, uh, but also we see in the, in light of the Shikari Richardson fiasco of the last couple of days, how intra-racial issues and, and diasporic issues, right. Looking at United States, Jamaica and, and yeah. other areas of the diaspora, how that can also create its own set of complex issues, um, Absolutely. as well. And so that's, that's, that was another con, another another conversation to it have. Really, because, it really is. Again, it not really Allison is. Felix. <laughs> like not Allison Felix, man. Oh, guy was on your side, like. <laughs> but but no, I you know I I'm I'm just quickly. I, I hope that the situation gets resolved, and I hope that there's more to that story because she's the future. Yeah. You know, she is the future of of 
of U.S. Um, uh, sprinting. And um, and so you just hope that, you know, that, you know, for one, that there's more to the story and also that even if there's not, that then this can be a long process of learning. And also we should also remember she has gone through a lot in the last, I don't know, couple months in terms of her her mother and, and other things in her life. A so. lot. A lot. Yeah. 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 You said something about um the the peddling, you know, the marketing of, of black pain and suffering. And, you know, um we we have um not just a, a, a literary marketplace, but just our our political environment is such that um we're so comfortable with black pain, black suffering, black grief, um, that we don't even know what to do with black joy. You know, we don't know what to do with black optimism. Um, and I think that that's a real problem for our society to work out. We as black people to work out, but also black studies, you know what I mean? Like, like we need to kind of interrogate ourselves too in our own academic practices. You know, think about how are we, how are we defining blackness in our syllabi and in the work that we do? Um, you know, because I've got to tell you, I, I, um, I think it's time for us and black studies to move past you know, in the book, I talk about Afro-pessimism, right? I talk about um, social death. Um, while these are realities of racism, they're present day realities, right? Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm -hmm. um, part of what I wanted to do in this book was to kind of look back at a, historic, a historical period that actually um, is frighteningly similar to the current moment we're in. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see so many, I, I taught a course um, last spring. It's my African-American novel in the Nader course. Mm. And it's on this period. It's on the post reconstruction up to the turn of the 20th century period. And I began that class with the image of a, a Trumpian in the white house holding the Confederate flag. Mm -hmm. I started the class with that. Um, because there are some eerie similarities between our current political moment and the period of the 1890s in which many of the writers I treat in the book publish their works. My point is that this book for me um, is my way of saying we might want to revisit the 1890s. There are lessons of political hope and I not to sound like Obama, but, you know, there are lessons <laughs> of political hope and idealism in the in the black fiction of the 1890s, because they were dealing with the same stuff we as black people look, and as Americans are dealing with today. They were dealing with Jim Crow. They were dealing with um, uh, with police violence. They were dealing with voter suppression. Right. They were dealing with that. And yet here they were. They were still, they were still using their fiction as a way to depict Black people with greater interiority, mm -hmm. you know, greater personhood. They were depicting Black, strong Black. You, what I love most about a book like I, Iola Leroy 
are the depictions of Black social life, Black intellectual spaces, um, the sewing circles where Black women were doing um, the work of community organizing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, Black people were, were in the worst of political situations. Black people were pressing on and they were, they, they were um, looking for ways to exercise greater agency and personhood in their own lives and in their communities. Um, And, you know, We've got to talk about that, too. We've got to move past just the Black pain, the grief, and the suffering. We need to talk about what Black people were doing to have autonomy and agency and how they were, I think, inherently thinking about a future world in which Black people would enjoy greater freedoms Um, and greater citizenship. Now that's not fully realized. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm no fool. You know, I live in the same world you live in. That's, that is not fully realized, but it is something that, um, that we need to think about, you Mm -hmm. know, there can be no racial healing until, you know, black people's citizenship is respected and protected. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and what you talk about um, reminds me and what we've probably been talking about these last probably 10, 20 minutes um, reminds me of um, it was uh, last it was a June 15th of 2020. Amani Perry had an essay in The Atlantic published called Racism is Terrible. Blackness is not. So many mm. people taught us to be more than the hatred heaped upon us. Right. And Mm. so to me, uh, you know, going back to this point about, uh, you know, my my question from before, but also thinking about how, as the title uh, shows, racism is the problem. Blackness. Right. And so. Absolutely. So so just um, a reminder of that and also how building on what she's articulating, what what, uh, I'm articulating that. And it goes to your point about black joy, because that's kind of like you know, underpinned uh, within this conversation about um, the possibilities of Blackness and, and the yes. the different ways that people enter the world. And also think about your 1890s uh, specific discussion. My family comes from not very far from Wilmington, North Carolina. And so thinking mm. about, you know, Wilmington and, and 18, uh, was it 1898, 1899, yeah, a coup. And so thinking about like that's chestnut's mayor of tradition right mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and so so just thinking about how we as uh, a people um as a as a group of black people and then people within the confines of the nation how we remember um and also how we generate thought about our space in this world and also one last thing too this reminds me of a discussion. I was on a, a panel about um, early uh, women's uh, history within the revolutionary era. And there was a discussion about one of the books that was uh, published that was published, I believe, in uh, 1980. And just thinking about, you know, I asked a question about, you know, to, to the authors thinking about, so thinking about 40 years ago, but then they were really like, no, it's really more like 50 years ago because we were writing um, she was writing her her uh, dissertation that turned into the book in the 1960s, in the early 1970s. So even just thinking about 
if a black writer is writing in the 1890s, the ideas that the that the book is based on, that the book are uh, the ideas are based on, goes back to the 1870s, 1880s, and to also think about the trajectory of the work, because although yeah. the book might might you know go from zero words to manuscript in a certain amount of time, it's also the fact that the words might be on the page, but the ideas in the head that's generating the the writing goes probably goes back much much further absolutely absolutely and um, yeah 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 and it goes to the question of sometimes also the hyper rush to get something written to come into a moment as opposed to you writing something that stands the test of time no matter how you know no no matter when it's written um yeah. and so you know, I was just calling attention to a couple things here, but in throughout your book, you're calling attention to some other stuff that I got to ask a question or two about. So um, throughout Afro-realisms and the romances of race, you call attention to how black and white writers wrote and theorized their own definitions of race and blackness in particular. Why did you think uh, challenging often static ideas about racial identity important for you to, to take up in, in the text? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, because representation then matter, like it still matters, right? Representation oftentimes is reality, you know, especially if you don't know any Black people personally. Um, you know, when we think about Black representation, specifically in the context of American fiction, it's always been incredibly racist. Um, it's always been marginalizing. Um, you know, you, you, you go back to Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. That was the book that kind of set the tone for black representation in fiction. Um, you know, Uncle Tom, he's depicted as a docile house Negro, um, you know, this kind of big buffoon, um, you know, and, um, or you look at Topsy, the little black character, the, the black girl, um, you know, I feel like that's a book that really kind of, um, set the tone for the demonization of black girlhood, right? She is uh, depicted as immoral, impish, um, mischievous. These pejorative representations come out of a history of slavery, but they also come out of a history of minstrelsy. And so we have to remember that minstrelsy was America's most popular form of entertainment during the 19th century. Right. Um, and so that determined the terms, right, um, in, in the conditions um, in which Black people were, were depicted. Um, these were flat, one dimensional, stereotypical, very negative, very um, horribly racist ways of depicting Black people. Um, and, you know, um, many of the characters in American fiction at that time reflected the stock characters of minstrelsy. So, you know, you, you have the Sambo, you know, the dandy. I think about the, um, the, the I think his name is Sammy. I, it's, I taught Merrill tradition um, 
a year and a half ago. Um, Sandy, I think it is, um, Tom Delamere's uh, house Negro. He's a dandy, you know, he's wearing the kind of extravagant clothes, you know, um, and he's there in, um, you know, this uh, very kind of lampoonish kind of cartoonish way. Um, Mammy, the tragic mulatto. In other words, there were only so many available slots for Black characters in American fiction. Um, and that was it. You know, um, there, there were no other creative possibilities. So um, Black writers understood that if Black people, actual Black people, were to ever um, uh, achieve the rights of citizenship, be seen as human beings, that they had to change how Black people were depicted in fiction, right? It started there. Um, we, we needed to change how people um, thought about, perceived, understood Black people. Um, and so, um, you know, what's so interesting to me about um, African-American writing at this time is that we see Black writers doing this and they're doing it by trying to give their characters greater subjectivity, interiority, and humanity. Um, they did this in a few ways. Um, one of the ways they did this is by undermining pseudo-biological definitions of race, like the one-drop rule, or the theory of atavism, which was a stupid scientific idea that if a Black person and a white person got together and they had a, a, a baby that the baby would revert back to the pure African type, right? Or this idea that mulattoes were sterile, right? Black writers took up these pseudoscientific ideas and, and they just, they challenged them. They just negated them in their fiction. Um, they, also, um, they also took up the tragic mulatta trope, which was a very popular trope in American fiction. Um, what made her tragic was her love for a white man who always rejected her, threw her away once he found out that she was black. And, um, and you know, she had this horrible death alone in the world. Black writers took up that trope and they completely changed it. You know, Iola Leroy, that's what Frances Harper's doing in Iola Leroy. And we have a mixed race woman who says, I'm not going to be tragic. I'm a black woman. I'm going to marry. Now there's a whole lot of um, kind of elitist light skin privilege at work in that novel. You know, um, um, uh, scholars have written about that. Andrea Williams, uh, Caritha Mitchell, right. Um, they've acknowledged the, the issues with that work, but it's huge for a black woman writer like Harper to change that formula and to give us a mixed race woman who chooses to be black and chooses to stay in her black community and uplift her people. Right. Um, they, they also rejected a lot of the legal and scientific arguments against interracial marriage by experimenting with, um, models of racial fluidity. Right. So they would, um, they would take up the miscegenation plot and they would change it and they would alter it. Um, they would take the passing plot, you know, and alter that to show us that identity is fluid. You know, identity is unstable. Um, you know, um, many of these works question 
the whole idea of what define what makes you black, right? Is it your blood? You know, is it um, the series of phenotypical markers, hair, skin, nail, skin, like, you know, it's, it's more than that, right? I mean, we know that race is um, not always visible. It kind of defies the ocular logic. It's also cultural, right? They were experimenting with all of this in their fiction. Um, and when we, what I love about this period in particular is that I, I always like to tell my students the seeds of what we call the trope of the new Negro that you see in a lot of Harlem Renaissance writing. Those seeds were planted in the 1890s by people like Charles Chestnut, Pauline Hopkins, and Francis Harper. They were already depicting Black people in new ways, you know, um, middle class, uh, school teachers, activists, right? Instead of the, the shuffling, you know, lazy uh, house Negroes um, that that minstrelsy had had given us. And once again, this is incredibly why, uh, this is definitely why, rather, um, your book helps to push conversations along, uh, historical conversations and, and contemporary ones, the same about the way race works and also how race and specifically race within the blends of blackness and, and more of the, the binary, which obviously we know it's not, uh, but within the black and white paradigm of thinking about the different dimensions that race uh, within the black sphere um, has operated. And also, you know, you talk about uh, Negro, and we, we know that uh, the essay that the Gates had from, uh, from uh, some years ago that discusses it, but just thinking about for me, um, and also for me, reading your work helps me to to think about how to write about race, even the within the context of my own dissertation, and how when you have enslaved people or, or refugees that are leaving uh, the new United States at the end of the American Revolution, they go to Canada, where they're confronted with vestiges of well, the continuation of slavery that's still in, in Nova Scotia. But how it's still, although the, the institution is there, it does look different. Or even when you have enslaved folks or, or refugees flee um, after the War of 1812 and they go to somewhere like Trinidad, right? Mm-hmm. A newly British colony, a new British colony. And thinking about them coming in as, as Black Americans who are coming into a new space where race, slavery colonialism worked differently because, you know, this, you know, they were formerly Spanish and now, you know, so just thinking about the different ways that race and confrontation work and not just necessarily in the physical violent space, but you and your blackness is in another space and how that works uh, within migration, diaspora, um, and, and also how that can also upset um, the, the racial social order um, in those yeah. spaces too. Um, which, once again, like I said, is helping me in thinking about how to write that for for my own dissertation. Um, and so, in addition to other things that your your book uh, puts in motion in my mind, um, while reading your book, I became interested in how your challenge to racial essentialism 
in the writing of African-American literature sounds, and, and may I push it a little bit as my, as uh, one of my favorite preachers would say, uh, to, to push it a little bit to say, it also sounds eerily similar in particular ways to the uproar in the last year about white authored anti-racism or anti-racist books, especially in the wake of last summer's uh, uh, protests after the murders of, of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. So do you, Professor Melissa, do you see any parallels between um, the calls against particular works, right? Do, do you see any parallels between these calls you make about who can write about Black people and some of the criticism of the work of, let's be honest, someone like Robin DiAngelo, who has been... Yeah. Although there are other people in the space, you, you brought up Tim Wise, but you know she's yeah. the one of this particular era, I think, in her time oh, frame. Right. So I'm yeah, very interested agree. to know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm hesitant to align myself with Robin D'Angelo or any white author of a book about race because um, I'm not white, and um, you know I'm married to a white man. Uh, I have three children who are biracial, who all identify as black. But beyond that, I'm not really invested in whiteness. Um, I'm not. I'm not invested in white people's anti-racist, emotional, um, or psychological work. Um, I think that that's something that white people really have to do for themselves, um, and they have to do it on their own. Um, so I guess that's a, a way of me saying that I think that people like Robin D'Angelo or Tim Wise, they're necessary in their white communities. That's not to say that we as Black people or as, you know, BIPOC people cannot read their work and, and um, be touched by it or walk away with something um, that's helpful and productive. But it's to say that I think that they are doing very important work in their white communities. And, and I think that they need to do that work. Um, but I will say that I, um, you know, I think that what they're doing or attempting to do is a worthwhile endeavor. And I think that all white people, um, even the ones who see themselves as allies or progressives, they need, they, white people got a lot of work to do. They really do. They really do. So for me, my challenge to racial essentialism has more to do with um, moving beyond a purely identitarian understanding of African-American literature as a project that only has value or relevance for Black people. Um, for me, I see, it, I see it this way. So while African-American literature is a separate and distinct tradition within a, a larger American um, a literary tradition, African-American literature is American literature. Um, it is world literature. And as such, it has lasting relevance for all people. Um, that said, when it comes to the topic of white people writing about Black people, um, or white people writing beyond their own subjectivity. And I know this is a very controversial conversation that is happening in creative writing right now. And a lot of um, creative writing writers workshops, you know? Um, so I kind of want to acknowledge that 
literary studies, like scholarly literary studies, I think has yet to really take up this conversation um, because I do think it's one that's really happening right now in real time in the creative writing world. But I think that we should be paying attention to that conversation and looking at it um, because it is going to have implications for the work that we do and and how we talk about the work that we do. Um, I understand that when it comes to white people writing about black people or white people writing outside of their own subjectivity, there are obviously very serious issues of representation and cultural appropriation that have to be acknowledged and reckoned with. And I am certainly not trying to be dismissive of that. You know, um, I think of Elizabeth McHenry's book, um, um, what is it called again? Lost? I have it. <laughs> right. I was going to say, busy. are you talking about the the one about uh, the Black Literary Societies? Yes. Yes, that one. Oh, oh I don't. It's... it's and I, oh, okay, I'm she has a new book. She has a, She does have another book coming up. Yes, she does. And I, I, I got it. Game. I got to read that. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. But, but okay. not to. But yes, but but in that book, she, she draws this distinction between um, representation and like self-representation. There is a difference, you know? Um, and so that's a very important distinction to make. Um, but, um, you know, in the epilogue of my book, what I'm trying to argue is that I, I think it is possible for white people to write outside of their own subjectivity, but they have to do it respectfully and they have to do it ethically. And I think that, and here I'm kind of, um, I'm invoking my colleague Viet Nguyen. He wrote this fabulous um, LA Times op-ed on um, cultural appropriation and so I'm kind of drawing from him here. So I have to really credit him for this idea, but I'm kind of putting it in my own language here. Um, they, When white people do this, they have to understand that this is not just an act of free will. This is not just an act of free speech. No, no, no. You need to reckon with the history of slavery and settler colonialism. Okay, so you've got to understand that your creative act is happening within that history. You know, your creative act is not happening in some depoliticized, um, deracialized creative vacuum. Uh uh, doesn't work like that. Um, But we need to make space for that. I think that there's something very important that needs to happen. Um, if we are ever going to close the racial gap, and we have a major racial gap, gap in this country. In the epilogue, I talk about how the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. I think it was 64, 64, 65. Can't remember exactly. We still live in America, you know, where um, most of us do not have friends who look different from us. Most neighborhoods are racially homogenized. Um, because of a history of redlining, um, because of a history of racism in housing and in mortgage um, lending. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the racial wealth gap, but we just have, we, we have huge gaps. Many of us don't make friends with people who, um, who don't look like us. We don't, we don't worship in churches um, with people who look different from us. 
You know, um, the only time we really do that may, might be at an athletic event, you know. Um, so we have to address these gaps if, if America is going to um, be the democratic, progressive bastion of liberty that it likes to tell itself that it is. You know, we know the truth. We know that it's not. Um, but if we are to ever try to um, live up to some of those beautiful principles of egalitarianism in our founding documents, then we've got to address those gaps, in my opinion. And um, I think that most of the burden really falls on white people here, I think. I think white people have way more work than, than the rest of us have to do when it comes to this. Um, they, they need to educate themselves about racialized experience. So many white people today don't even think of themselves as being racialized. They don't think about themselves as having privilege. That's a problem because it allows them to remain ignorant about race and racialization and how it works and how they might be agents of racism and how they might be perpetuating it, right? Um, for me, when a writer creates a fictional character, it for, for in order for that character to be believable, right, you kind of have to be able to inhabit your character's subjectivity, just like in method acting, right? It, it, you, you know, in method acting, you become the character you're playing, right? And I think that there's something productive about that. Um, because I think that that process might result in greater empathy, right? I think, I think it might, I'm not sure, but I want to believe the optimist in me wants to believe that that might result in empathy. And I think that one of the biggest problems I see in American life today, we don't have empathy, um, for each other. And I, and, and I think a lot of white people, particularly white people who, um, who are anti-BLM, they have no empathy for Black people. You know, they have no, I, I think about what happened at Mother Emanuel at the church in North Carolina, Dylan Roof. Dylan Roof had no empathy for Black people, none whatsoever. He walks in there with an AK-47, whatever gun he had. And he says, and the black people are telling him, you don't have to do this. And he says, I do because you're raping our women and you're taking over, you're taking control of the country. You know, it's comments like, to me, I, you, don't, you don't see these people as humans. You don't empathize with them. So I think that um, literature can teach us empathy, you know, um, Going back to um, African-American literature, I think part of the reason why it continues to be marginalized in spite of its marketability and its institutional prominence is because there still remains this dysfunctional idea that it only has relevance for Black people. The problem with this is that it allows non-Black people to remain ignorant about Black experience, as well as the history of slavery and ongoing racial oppression. I actually think the world would be a much better place if more people read and studied African-American literature. 
and and not just the texts about slavery, Jim Crow, and civil rights, but also the ones that aren't explicitly about these themes, so that they walk away from the literature with a more expansive view of what constitutes African-American writing and what it means to be Black. And all of what you speak about is talking about things that are present in our actual present, right? Obviously historically, but that we're living with today, but also about visions of the future um, and, and a world that you hope is being created and made right now. Um, And so in that vein, I'm interested to know about your own vision for the field, for for the field that you inhabit, one of the fields that you inhabit, of course. So in your vision for the future of African-American literary studies, what do you see? Where, Where should the field go? What areas should graduate students like myself uh, move more toward, right? You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're a professor, you know, you're in the classrooms with undergrads and, and, and graduate students alike, right? Yeah. What do you think that, yeah. you know, folks like myself should really be pushing towards as well? This is a great question. And one that I can um, speak to because I am on my department's um, graduate admissions committee. So I'm seeing the applications trickle in. And so, um, I think that, you know, I'm I'm old school, like I'm 40 years old, so I'm a different generation already, I think, you know, I'm, and I'm thinking of a generation like 10, 15 years, you know what I mean? Um, so, you know, I started grad school in the mid 2000s, you know, and at that time, um, Black studies was being opened up. You know, I studied with people like E. Patrick Johnson and Dwight McBride. And so, I, you know, coming out of Chicago Northwestern, um, the ethos was very much about the people who would be the players, you know, doing the work, creating the new Black studies, you know. Um, and it's also one of my favorite series at um, Illinois UP. I love that new Black study series. So, um For me, I feel like what the new Black Studies scholars did is that they they really transformed Black Studies with these approaches, these new approaches to race, class, gender, and sexuality, of course. So um, I feel like a lot of the most exciting work is building off that work that they did. You know what I mean? So um, gender and sexuality studies, for sure. Um, trans blackness. Um, I think that's going to be a really, really hot, important um, subfield. Um, media studies. Um, we we made an appointment in media studies last year, um, and um, you know this is going to be a very important um, uh, appointment in our department. Um, I also think performance studies will continue to um, to thrive. Um, dia- you were talking about diaspora earlier. Diaspora, um, global Black studies. We just hired um, someone in global Black studies. I remember seeing that uh, job ad, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, um, well, I don't know. Maybe I didn't help write that one. I, I've written so many of these um, these proposals to try to secure a line. And unfortunately, they don't always result in a line because of funding. Um, and COVID has really messed up 
I mean, COVID has just wrecked university budgets. And so, um, you know, your generation and the generation that comes after you, you know, you guys are going to continue to be impacted by COVID. Unfortunately, we all will. Um, but, um, I think that because of what happened last summer with Black Lives Matter, um, you know, universities, I think more so now than ever realize that if they are to keep, you know, asses in the seat, excuse my language, (laughs) they, they have to really change their faculty and they've got to change their curriculum. And I have sat in so many meetings about that over the last year. And um, so, so I'm going to say that there's an opportunity because I think what the pandemic did is that the pandemic, it held a mirror up in front of us and it showed us, okay, COVID's not the only pandemic. We've got a pandemic of racism and it's literally killing people. It's literally killing people. You know, we had this whole controversy at USC. I don't know if you heard of it. The Black at USC Instagram account. Ooh, no, no, no. Staff, faculty posting their experiences with anti-Blackness on campus. Mm. Very powerful. The administration took note. They listened. There were meetings. Changes were made. Um, tenure lines were granted. Appointments are starting to be made. So this is also, I think, um, a a key time and an opportunity for your generation and those who come after you to to think about how you're going to market yourself um, in the academy and to think about um, how you can can build on these developments. And honestly... um... You you reminded me of some other things that happened last year in terms of, you know, when we're talking about race representation and also how people's jobs can literally be created out of thin air based upon students, student activism, which obviously we know is the insurgent uh, formation of Black studies um, as a field, but also thinking about how the three incidents, I think it was three or four, of uh Jessica Krug and you had Ooh, um yes. uh you, you had the other professor at um I think she came from UC Davis but she uh was teaching at Furman University. Yeah, yep. and just thinking about like this because this actually goes directly to this discussion of race and representation um because you it's one thing that we have many different examples of 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 white and and like you said people who do not um, uh, identify as the person that they're necessarily writing about in terms of group who have written great books about great books. black people, you know, uh, Latinx folks and whatever the group you're talking about. Some of the best work in 19th century African-American literary studies yeah, has Andrews. been done by white scholars. Andrews. Eric Gardner, yeah. William a- Andrews, Eric Sundquist, um, who who am I leaving? Oh, John Ernest. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mm-hmm. I know these people. Yeah, I they're my mentors. I look up to yeah. them. Yeah, and, and what it goes to is the fact that you don't need to do what they did to inhabit people that should just not. You could just be you, and yeah, and that ain't never hurt nobody, right? And so, right about that. And so, <laughs> what you bring up is just making me think about like 
how this how how the 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 overall discussions we've been having for almost two hours bring us to what had been happening in these last couple of years that literally have like a buddy of mine, uh, Holly Pinheiro is now the professor at Furman who got the job after they, um, after they put it back out after, mm-hmm. she, I don't know if she, I don't know if she ended up um, resigning or, or whatever, but she obviously does not have the job anymore. Right. And so that literally has material impact on yeah. people. Right. And so, yeah. so it, it's just interesting just kind of thinking about the, the ways that our discussions also have living consequences in the world that we live in as someone who's like, as you say, trying to market and trying to understand my own development and how sometimes yeah. unforeseen circumstances and or circumstances that you have no handle and hand on can also impact too. Look, I'll take that job. Hey, hopefully. They get- can I just say one thing about the Jessica Krug thing? Yeah, and this, of course, you know, of course. I just have to speak on this. Universities are to blame. The culture of the academy is to blame. Mm. I um, came up at a time where um, a lot of the people who got the jobs in Black studies and African-American studies, they were um, racially indeterminate people. You know, I don't want to put any names out there. I'm not going to do that, although I'm tempted to. But a lot of the people, you know, they they were racial passers. They were up here trying to be something that they're, you know, I don't want to invoke racist essence, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. here. But, you know, part of what I want to say is that some of the blame falls on the academy and the institutions. They're to blame because if you would hire black people, this wouldn't happen. You know what I mean? So like, um, I think it speaks to um, colorism in the academy. Mm. Um, You know, candidates who present like me or lighter than me, they have different experiences in the job market than the candidates who are considerably darker than me, who are wearing their natural hair. I mean, you know, there are so many issues here about embodiment, like how we embody our blackness, how we present that that um, are a part of this conversation. But I do want to say that um, Jessica Krug and people like that, the academy allows that to happen. Mm. The way institutions work allows that to happen. Um, if you would hire black people who look like us, this wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. And I, <laughs> I, ju- I, I, you know, once again, no names, of course, but I, right. I we definitely know of people whose uh, 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 online presence has changed a little bit. And also their, um, their, their either faculty or personal websites as well changed immediately after just to make sure that there's no improprieties in terms of, uh, you know, <laughs> what, what people consider them, of course, which look, Hey, I understand. Look, because yeah. if you see someone over there getting, you know, hemmed up. So, and, and I think the other interesting thing about that Krug situation is just because when you look at the, some of the um, discussions that came after that, or, or as it's, as everything is unfolding and, you know, think pieces and everything, um, you just have to remember the fact that like, 
there were people now, and I'm not, let me also preface by saying, I'm not putting the blame on people who either thought and or knew, but I'm saying more so that there were people who did think and or know 100% that this was the case. But it's also one where, especially if they're a junior person, yeah, it's it could be like actual, whether or not it's factual about the other person, that could end up being um, career suicide or at least career stagnation, which could totally. ultimately turn into like that space. Um, if they were to go to someone's, you know, especially if they're not even at the person's institution, right? Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I, but suffice it to say, as other people said too, there are more that it's not just them, that there are oh, others. They're definitely, um, they're definitely more. So, but you know, but as we finish up here on a more <laughs> fun note, although I think this is also fun too, but a different kind of fun, um, Here's a fun question for you I, that I love asking my favorite writers on the podcast. If you had all the memory you needed to build your own writing, reading, and thinking space, what would it look like, sound like, and also even smell like? Please paint the picture, create all the imagery for <laughs> the listeners. Please. Yeah, this is a fun question. Um, this is a fun question. Um, if money was a non-issue, of course, I'm in California. <laughs> so, mm. you know, mm -hmm. I'm lucky to have a roof over my head. Amen to that. Um, but if money was a non-issue, I would have an office in Malibu overlooking the beautiful Pacific Ocean. And it would be either... Um, like an old beach bungalow or an, or a new construction condo. I'd be fine with either one um, with lots of windows, lots of natural light. Um, and because I suffer from anxiety um, and I'm just kind of generally overwhelmed, I've generalized anxiety disorder Um one of the ways I deal with that is by being highly organized, but also just not having a lot of clutter. So the aesthetic, the general design aesthetic would be minimalist um, with just only the necessary furnishings, um, desk, chair, iMac, you know, um, and uh, everything would be sleek, simple, clean, white or um, natural colored. I love like taupe and grayish, um, off white. Um, I don't like white, white, that's too stark, but, <laughs> <laughs> but just soothing natural colors. And I would have a few pictures of my husband and my daughter, of course, um, a few Jacob Lawrence um, prints on the wall. I have some in my, my office here in California. Um, from the migration series. Um, I, um, and I think the place would be peaceful, calm, um, and it would smell like sea salt and lavender. Those are my favorite scents. I find them just very calming and relaxing. Um, and it would be like a writer's retreat, mm -hmm. but without other people. <laughs> <laughs> People, I, I'm very social and I love, and I'm personable, I think, and I think not a lot of people in our profession are, but um, 
I kind of like being alone too, to be honest with you. Um, and I would be there um, with my thoughts and um, and my MacBook or my iMac, whatever. Yeah, and there is such an interesting way that the pandemic and loneliness has worked in a way where it's interesting where it's like, like for a large portion of it, I would live by myself. But mm-hmm. like now, you know, I, there was a portion where I lived by myself, stay with my mom, stay with. So, so it's like when it comes to having to rework your own process, like when I began at Rutgers, it was fall 2019. So the habits I developed then, I can't use now because even now, just like as things are opening up more, it's still not the same, right? And yeah. so having to learn after having said previously, I don't know how people be working at home. Well, <laughs> uh, hello, you know, <laughs> welcome to right. the last year and a half. But, um, but, but, but yeah. And so, so it just brings up the question of just like, how, do, how, do, how can you be alone in, with your thoughts when you have a house full of people that you either have to help you have to, you know, and I think the other thing I've realized this same with my mom for a couple months was she gave me the time I needed, but it also got to a point where sometimes I was like, I had to at least open up and say, Hey mom, how you doing over there? You know, I still got work to do, but it's also like, I don't want to just be alone for four hours. And she's, you know, she wants, you know, I'm, I'm home. I want to be able to be social and, and such like that. Yeah. But also I had got work to do, you know, so trying to find that, yeah. that balance <laughs> seemed to be something that a lot of people um, you know, uh, uh, dealt with. And so it's just really cool hearing, you know, all the, all the different answers that you have, uh, to, to one of my favorite questions that I, I love asking people. Um, and, and, and so, uh, one of the other last ones is actually, uh, another exciting one, I think. Um, so, so, so for you, Melissa, what excites you most about the work you do as a writer, professor, and also a teacher? Love this question. Um, I love being able to bring my full self to work. Um, I've never had a job where I could do that. And I feel like I can in my current position. Um, I like to talk about literature and culture. It's what excites me. Um, I like to, to think about the relationship between art and politics. Um, and not just like, you know, cultural politics, but also like, you know, formal politics too. Um, you know, we, we operate in um, a discipline, um, maybe more so me, but I don't know, you could tell me if this applies to historians too, but you know, I'm in literary studies, I identify as a literary historian. Um, and I'm in an English department, you know, and um, when you're lit faculty in an English department, it can be hard because, um, you know, we're not the ones who are um, keeping the department alive. You know, we're not necessarily the ones who are putting um, asses in the seats, as I said earlier, you know, Um, oftentimes it's like creative writing or some of the other, you know, popular tracks. So, um, as a lit faculty member, it can be easy to, to just feel like, um, you know, you're, you, you don't really have a place in the department, but, um, I don't really feel that way. Um, but I, I, I still believe in the power of literature, even though 
English departments are starting to kind of phase out their literary um, uh, programs. Um, I think that art is powerful. Literature is powerful. And I still think that even in the multimedia electronic world that we inhabit, I still think that literature is powerful. Um, And I think that the writers who I have spent um, so many years studying and writing about and, and teaching, they, they themselves approached their writing as a way to take on very difficult social, racial problems. And so in that vein, in that tradition, I try to do that in my teaching, you know, um, and that excites me. Because a lot of our students, they don't read. A lot of our students, um, they're narrative studies students. They want to be, you know, this is LA. They want to be screenwriters. They want to be create. They want to produce content, you know, for the multimedia world that we live in. And so I love that I get to to teach them something new. I get to kind of. Um, bring them into these conversations that they're already having in their creative writing classes or their narrative studies classes. And I get to show them how 19th century writers were engaging with these issues. Um, Oftentimes kids come to the study of literature through a movie, through like a film adaptation of a text so I like that I get to kind of um, show them where that movie came from. You know, um, I would also say that as far as my teaching goes, um, I'm really excited about introducing students to Black writers who they may be unfamiliar with. Um, and um, I also like being able to explain to them, for example, like what the connection is between a 19th century slave narrative like Harriet Jacobs's Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, um, a TV show or a TV miniseries like Roots. I think, you know, a couple of years ago, there was like the, the new Roots um, or a neo-slave narrative like Beloved. Um, and a, a more recent, um, a more recent work like Steve McQueen's film, 12 Years a Slave, which came out, you know, in 2013. So um, I'm a real genealogy person, you know, I kind of think more like a historian, more like you, you know, mm-hmm. and so, so as a scholar of literary history, I just love teaching students about the continuities and the breaks in um, what I like to describe as the the longer narrative that is the African-American experience. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, uh, those students at uh, USC, the other USC, because I'm from South Carolina, my family's from South Carolina. So when we say USC, the we other, think about the other one, you know what I'm saying? The other USC, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> South Carolina. But uh, nevertheless, I, I'm, I'm so excited. And, um, and, and also, you know, I, I think you had said something about, uh, you know, tenure. So, you know, uh, uh, congratulations on that too. That's, Thank you know, you. that's, that's big. Um, and, and also, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited for all the 
students that that are able to be in your classroom. And I feel like one of your students now off of this conversation, I feel like we, you know, it's a little bit of a lecture slash conversation here that I love, you know, the format here and obviously reading the book. And so um, for for the last bit here, for the last question here too, uh, this is one of my new new favorite questions. Um, and And it's about playlists. Because I always I I remember tweeting this out a while ago saying if you had a walkout song like you know talk about baseball they usually have like walkout yeah. songs right yeah what would your walkout song be for your presentation that you're gonna give at this conference or something so to expand that out a little bit further for the for the last question here for your episode if you had to construct a five to ten song Afro realisms and the romances of race playlist to accompany your book. What songs would you choose? This is this this question is so cool. And I have to say that it's the question that I probably spent the most time thinking about. <laughs> yeah. Like I love music. I probably have like 10,000 songs in my my music catalog. Um and I love music from all different eras too. Um so like I try to approach this question kind of as a historian would, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I thought about the historical period the book focuses on. I also thought about how my book, like the literature at the time um, that I treat in the book, it, you know, looked backwards to slavery, looked, you know, forward to the future. So, so my playlist does that too. My playlist kind of looks back um, at the 19th um, century, and then it, it it looks forward to now. So that's my playlist. Um, so I would I would say um, the first song would be the Negro National Anthem, of course, of course. right? I just feel like you have to start there, right? So lift every voice and sing. For anyone who doesn't know that, that's the Negro National Anthem, which was actually written by one of my favorite Black writers, James Weldon Johnson, and his brother. Um, John Rosamond Johnson, who set the lyrics to to music. Um, and um, after that, so that's like my, you know, the oldest song on, on the, the playlist. Mm-hmm. Then I would, um, I'm a jazz head and um, I love Coltrane. Um, and, you know, everyone, I feel like everyone knows in a sentimental mood. You know, I'm a 90s. I was a teenager in the 90s. So I hear In a Sentimental Mood and I think about the first time I saw Love Jones mm. and I heard that song, you know. Um, but actually, Alabama by John Coltrane, which um, came out in 1963. Um, it It's a song many people say that he, um, he created um, in the aftermath of the bombing of the the 16th street Baptist church in Birmingham, which I lived like down the street from when I was at the university of Alabama at Birmingham. And I was able to walk the grounds and, and, and see, um, many of us know the story of the, the four little girls who tragically lost their lives during that, that bombing. Um, and so this song, um, for many people is like, Coltrane's response to that to that event um and then I would have to go with some Sam Cooke I I love a change is gonna come I love um you know here's a song 
um, you know, that that was recorded in the midst of the civil rights movement. Um, and even though in some ways this was a very challenging time for Black people, the song is so optimistic. It is so, um, it's a beautiful song. Um, and I think that there's a similar ethos in that song and the writings of, of the authors um, that I take up. And I even think kind of the mood of my epilogue too um, is very much in line with um, the lyrics and the, the melody of, um, of A Change Is Gonna Come. Uh, then next up, um, I'd have to say kind of similar um, I love Marvin Gaye. Mm. I love, 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 love Marvin Gaye. Um, and my favorite Marvin Gaye song is Inner City Blues. Um, I think Marvin Gaye was one of the most complex figures in um, R&B soul music. I think that he was very multifaceted. I think he had a lot of different sides to his personality. And, you know, many people know the Marvin Gaye who was the sex symbol you know, um, who was the Motown darling, but, you know, at the time of his death, people knew the sexual healing Marvin Gaye, you know, the the balladeer and, and all that. But what I love about Inner City Blues is like that, that is cultural and political critique at its best. You know what I mean? Um, it's Black eco-criticism, you know? Mm -hmm. It really is. It's it's black eco criticism. Um, it's political criticism, um, uh, much in the same way as like what's what's going on, right. you know. Um, so um, I think that that's the kind of critique that these writers that I treat in the book are also um, issuing. Um, Across the lines by Tracy Chapman. It's not a song that a lot of people know. Um, this was on her album that uh, came out um, in the late 80s. And the real popular song was, um, you know, I've got a fast car. Mm -hmm. People know that song, you know, um, but Across the Lines is, is a very beautiful song um, about um, overcoming um, the divisions, the divisions, the hierarchies, that kind of um, structure our society. Um, and uh, it's, it's a really beautiful song. And then finally, this is a song that I just recently added to my playlist. I came across it. I, um, I'm really interested in, um, it's probably no surprise given you know the epilogue of the book, but I'm interested in Black people doing things that most people say Black people don't do. <laughs> like I'm, I'm just very fascinated by that and so I've always been one, one of my favorite groups in the 80s was this group called Living Color and um, they were a black punk band you know um, and I love them love them love them so um, this my playlist ends with a song called Justice um, by the Oxymorons they're a black alternative group and the song has been associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's a great song. And um, I think that it's, it's the song of our present moment, you know? Um, 
and it's it's pretty cool. So um, listeners, if you haven't heard it, please go check it out. Hey, and while y'all at it, make sure to go get Dr. Melissa Daniels Router Kiss's amazing book, Afro-Realisms and the Romances of Race, Rethinking Blackness in the African-American Novel, published by our friends at Louisiana State University Press, also known as LSU Press. And so, Professor, Melissa, all the names that you go by, I really <laughs> appreciate you for uh, taking the time to discuss your amazing book. And I'm really looking forward to you know having this out into the world and so that people can not only read the book, and all, but also have this companion episode to help them through understanding the the parts of the book that they don't necessarily get to see that are very much involved in the process. And shouts out to Dr. Foreman and 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 Ernest and and all the folks because like I said I was at uh, UD and so um, I remember those amazing folks when they were there. And thank you for your work. And so thank you as well because you know we all got competing uh, claims on our time. So I'm glad that for the last which rounded up to two and a half hours. We've been talking <laughs> here. And so uh, looking forward to this next time. And so listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode, please, please, please rate us and review us, New Books in African-American Studies, wherever you get your podcasts. And once again, y'all, my name is Adam Xavier McNeil, your host of New Books in African-American Studies. Until next time, y'all, over and out.